Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for another weekly episode. This week, we have a guest, Joshua Burson. Um, He's received his PhD, so I should say he is Dr. Joshua Burson. But he is an independent researcher and scholar, author, who's written three incredible books thus far. I'm sure he has more to come. But really, he is just out of this world, incredibly smart and so perceptive and is really able to connect really large social, environmental, and I'm sure even political um, themes and issues within his novels. Now, before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to briefly say that I had the lovely opportunity to be a guest on my friend Adam Gamwell's podcast called This Anthro Life. Some of you may remember I had Adam on the podcast as well, or on this podcast, on that anthro podcast. So if you'd like to listen to my episode on This Anthro Life, it's called Learning Forensics and Applying Anthropology with Gabriella Campbell. And yeah, it was a super fun episode. I think one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. I really felt like I got across what I wanted to get across. But um, another little update about me, I'm still in the thick of studying for the GRE and applying to grad schools. But I'm happy to report that in the last couple of weeks, I've definitely found some really interesting programs that I hadn't um, considered before. And I'm really happy to be you know, on this incredible journey of applying to grad school. It's a lot. It's like a full-time job. I used to kind of not like seriously judge, but like give a little side eye to people that said they were taking a gap year to apply to grad school. But now I get it. Like I get it. It's a full-time job. I'm not going to lie. Like I could have used a gap year, but it's okay. I'm in the thick of it now. So don't worry about me. Um, the other thing that happened, and I just want to touch on it briefly because I did post it on the Instagram. Um, as many people know, uh, one of the prime ways of getting around campus at UCSB is biking. So I was biking and, um, (laughs) a freshman who didn't know how to bike, um, turned left across the bike path across my lane and into me. And I'm really thankful, no broken bones, no concussion that we know of. Um, But I did have um, my ear split. So I had to get six stitches to repair that. And to be honest, um, I kind of made a tweet like joking about it. When I woke up that morning, I did not expect to be in the ER by 10 a.m. getting six stitches in my ear. Like when I fell off that bike, my first thought was not like, oh, I'm going to be, you know, getting stitches in my ear. But I'm very happy to say that um, 
it's back in one piece. The stitches are out and I'm very lucky. It looks pretty normal. Hasn't been too painful and I've been recovering. Yeah. So that's kind of what's going on with me. Um, I don't know if anyone like wanted or needed that little catch up session, but you could skip through it if you wanted to. Anyway, I just like to kind of try to relate with you guys before there's like an episode. But without further ado, let's get into the episode with Josh Burson. First, before we start, um, so I'd love to begin our episode just by asking you a bit about your life so far. I think it's always great to give people kind of context about how one ended up where they ended up. <laughs> so where were you born and raised? Oh, I grew up in uh, in the in the, the northern north and western suburbs of, of New York City, so Rockland County for for those at home for whom that's a, a meaningful thing. Uh, and I have to say, you know, I, I was thinking about this question before we, in the day or so before we met about what, how did that affect uh, where where life has taken me, uh, or what were my formative early experiences? And I have to say, I'm I'm a bit at a loss. I mean, I can <laughs> I can enumerate hypotheses, but but um, nothing in particular stands out at me over the over the uh, my my childhood and adolescence maybe if i you know if i rambled for a few hours something would come but um but yes i grew up more or less in in greater metropolitan new york yeah awesome and just um i know this but our listeners right now josh is um recording from berlin that's where he's been spending his time recently um so you know, you ended up as a visual and environmental studies major at Harvard. So first of all, I'm sure you get the like, ooh, Harvard all the time, but I'm more interested in that specific major and how you ended up in that cohort. That's an interesting question because it, I, it was not, it, it's a, it, it was, and, and for all I know remains, so I'm not, I'm not really in, in touch with the program. It was a very strange program, and it and that was that was by by dint of path dependence. It had a strange history. It uh, it, it grew out of a particular moment, as, as I understand it, in the in what you would call the the human ecology movement of the late nineteen sixties, mm-hmm. and it um, and it had been intended initially to to develop into a kind of um, architecture or or pre architecture program. Uh, and then at, at a certain point in the 1980s, there was there was talk of of turning it into some, what today we'd call a media lab. You know, so mm-hmm. when the when the MIT Media Lab opened down Mass Ave, uh, whenever it was 19, 1993, four or five, um, that it, there had been a plan to to do something similar. At Harvard, that would incorporate the VES department along with aspects of the the Graduate School of Design, and that ended up not happening. And in the time that I was there, it became kind of more of a of a traditional fine arts department. But that's not what the 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 trend that led me to to enroll. I it's you know a, a lot of my work has to do with the 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 tension between structure and contingency in, in history and especially deep history. And here's, here's a, this, 
this uh, this question, how did I end up in, in visual and environmental studies, really speaks to the contingency part. Because at Harvard, as I, today I imagine at, at a number of schools, rather than pre-registering, you had what, what uh, what was referred to as a, as a shopping week at the start of every term mm -hmm. where you could essentially audit whatever courses you wanted and, and the lecturers would assign materials. So if you, if you were considering seven courses, it was up to you to keep up with the material for seven courses for the first week or two. And then at the, at the end of the first week, you turned in your, 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 uh, your registration card and you, then you had another couple of weeks when you could change without uh, pick, uh, add courses or drop courses without needing the consent of the, of the course head. And they, the way the, the, uh, the way things worked there is they required everyone to live on campus in, uh, in these, in, in these, uh, these residential units known as entryways in, in their first year. And you were assigned a residential advisor, a proctor. And the residential advisors were not, were not terribly experienced. Many of them were themselves recent graduates, but by, by, but that was a virtue because they understood the core system very well. And in a conversation, the the a few days before the start of the term in September 1993, with my with the proctor, with the RA of my entryway, he said to me, "You know, there's this guy, there's there's this there's this one guy who's who's uh, who's fall lecture course you might consider auditing because it it seems like you're based on what you what the the trend of our conversation, uh, you his his way of thinking would be congenial to you." Mm. And the, the, the individual he, he had in mind was a, a professor at the design school named John Stilgo. And he, was dual, he had dual appointments in the design school and in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and taught essentially the same courses, or they, not essentially, but they, he, he had uh, one set of courses that was dual listed in visual and environmental studies and in the uh, GSD, the, the design school. And his fall course was, uh, an introductory survey to the study of the of uh, the the design of the built environment from a historical perspective, with an emphasis on North America since uh, since the the onset of of uh, major settlement colonization in the in uh, in the in the 16th century, and it was colloquially referred to as gas stations. So I shopped gas stations, and I ended up taking it, and ended up. Um, becoming a VES student in part because of uh, of, of, uh, of his influence and his mentorship, and he and I worked together over the course of my my uh, my time as an undergraduate. And he he remains though though we don't speak very often. He remains a close friend now, twenty eight years later, uh, and and uh, I consider him a, a key influence on uh, on my 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 work and my way of thinking. I, I find myself now. On a on a weekly basis, um, being brought up short by by how a lot of the projects that I'm I'm just starting to to project, if you will, over the the uh, the next phase of my career, uh, go back in one fashion or another to conversations that he and I had 25 years ago. So it, in it's it's not very satisfactory to me to say this that it was that it was this this um. 
this, uh, this type specimen um, mentorship or founder effect. But in this case, that, that's really what it was. It was this contingent event where an RA suggested I, uh, I might like this one course and, and uh, that, that led to, to my study in this particular subject. See, but that's my favorite thing to learn about guests because so many people have, whether it's a moment or a phase in their life that they can look back on and really see like what got their journey started. And I think it's really impactful for our younger listeners to hear, or even someone my age who's, you know, starting their graduate school journey or their journey in the job market. And that like, you know, when someone recommends something or you hear something interesting, like try it try new things, you know, these classes, like shopping classes is such an interesting way. I've actually heard um, from a TV show, funnily enough, that other Ivy Leagues do that shopping thing at our at our very large public institutions. It's a bit different, but we can oh. still test out classes. Sure. It's just a bit more stressful. <laughs> it, it's, um, it is useful, you know, and, but it, Okay, it, it it creates an it creates an incentive structure for for uh, for lecturers to to, uh, to to make the the first couple of meetings very exciting, right? Mm, yes. And so it, it creates it, it the, the there are parallels in a way to the in the in the effects that that a, that a shopping period at the start of a term has on the on the on the design of courses to the to the in, incentives that that say something like the, the dominance of Amazon and book sales imposes on writers. So for example, when you sell a book now, or when you try to find a literary agent, it's a bit different in the, in the UK uh, market, but in, in the US market, most agents just want to see the first five to 10 pages of, of, of your manuscript. If you're, if, you're selling a, you know, if you're selling kind of a pop science book, maybe they'll also want to see an outline. Um, you know, in a, a, a prospectus, a pitch. If you're if you're selling something more um, more belletrist or fiction, they they just want to see that opening those opening pages because that's that's what readers will see because the the browsing experience of being able to pull a, shell, a book off the shelf and and open to the middle is gone. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, in fact, I, I refer to the browsing experience, but this is something I, I recall from my from my own. Uh, coming of age, if you will, and that, that that's probably that might be alien to you. Um, perhaps not so much because oh, you're no. at, you know, because you're, you're, you're Park, which has that beautiful li yes. library with the open stacks, right? The uh, the geisel. But um but it's but it's increasingly uncommon. And so mm -hmm. I I I think about this now. You know, I I don't I don't teach all that often, but um but it's certainly the case that 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 uh, setting those those incentive uh, the, the effect on incentives, uh, the, the incentive effects on, on course design aside, it is very helpful just to see a bit of, of, of uh, what, what the course is, is going to be like, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, um, uh, it and it, yeah, uh, yeah and, and since you bring, mention your own impending uh, entry into graduate school, I'll add that is far more than at the undergraduate level. You know, the, the PhD experience is a, very, is, is a unique, almost guild-like uh, kind of training experience because there's so much transference. There's so, there's, it's, it's such a, an, an awkward and, and fraught uh, mentorship experience. And I mean, I, I, I could tell you stories from, from my own time and we perhaps, perhaps a bit later on, but, uh, but 
but yes, it's it it's uh it it you will be rewarded, listeners, if you if uh, if if uh, if you maintain a certain a certain uh, neutral curiosity toward uh, mm -hmm. if, if you just try things. Yep. And going back to what you said about bookstores, I was just, um, I'm going to go pick up some birthday presents for a family member at a bookstore. And there is just nothing that will ever compare for me to just walking in a bookstore and going to a section, whether it's fiction or anthropology or just something I want to look into and just like finding a book that I never would have like thought to look for if I was just browsing through online and sure. finding just fun treasures. So I hope, I hope that others still can relate to that. It's such a lovely thing. Like I spent so much time with my mom growing up. We'd just go to the bookstore, like Borders, when Borders right. was a thing and just sit in right. Borders and read for hours. Um, for you as a writer now that, you know, you're writing books, does it feel a bit different knowing that people aren't having that experience? <laughs> does it feel different as an author going into a bookstore or just, or, or knowing more about the publishing industry? What was, what was the question? Mm. Maybe when now, you know, the books that you have out already, like the meat question, is it sure. different knowing that people aren't walking into, or I shouldn't say not no one, but not as many people are walking right. into a bookstore and picking it up in that way. Did it maybe right. influence your cover art choices or any choices or maybe no choices? Well, this is an interesting question. And the meat question is, a, is an interesting book to ask it about. So the meat question was my second book. The first appeared oh. in 2015 and it was called uh, Computable Bodies. And it it was uh, it was a book of opportunity. It grew uh, very very approximately and, and distally out of research I'd done for for uh, my PhD, and we can we can circle back to that mm -hmm. at some point. But but it 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 but that one arose kind of in a fit of absent-mindedness. So it arose when I was trying to run away from what became the meat question. So the meat question was a long time in the making, and when. I ended up being very very much satisfied with with the book uh, as it as it was when it, when it finally came out. I'm a bit less so now, and I can I can talk a bit about why. But as as far as the audience for that book and and the the path that that book took to publication, there there are a couple a couple of interesting things. One is that it was I guess I first conceived of that book in. Early 2011, where I first I first had the not conceived of the book, but had the idea to write on this theme in early 2011, and it was late 2019 when the when the book came out, and you'll you may be aware because you you uh, you do or or in, at least in prospect you do this for a living, mm -hmm. right? That's not that's not exceptional, right? But uh, yeah. but but for a lot of people that will seem uh, either extraordinary or or just uh, gobsmackingly wasteful, right? That one would take so long on on such a thing. You know what the 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 uh, the secret uh, to doing good work is to spend a lot. Is that it takes a lot of time staring into space mm -hmm. to all outside appearances doing nothing. And that's yeah. something that no one wants to hear today. But that's something else we can come back to about if you want to talk about uh, process as it as it were. But. I, so I, I had this I, I had this idea in my head where I had not not an idea but a, a, a kind of a pre-idea an amorphous set of stuff and uh, I I, uh, I went to the after I, I finished my my initial two-year 
tour of duty in, in Berlin at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, I went to Munich to a new research institute at the University of, at uh, Ludwig Maximilian uh, University mentioned called the Rachel Carson Center for Environment mm -hmm. and Society. And I had, I, I, I had a, a year's support to develop this book. And it was in the course of my time there that I ended up developing this other book, which became my first published book, Computable Bodies, um, which was actually a, a started as a spur, a sort of a, a lark of another book um, called uh, Topology and Surveillance, which was more directly related to work I'd done uh, as a PhD student and which, which has now been broken out into into journal articles and has appeared that way, but will will never appear in book form, and the world is no worse for that. <laughs> so, the but but um, but it took me a long time really to figure out like what what shape the meat question should have and what scope it should have. You know, it was I guess it was by early two thousand thirteen, by about halfway through my time in in Munich, I had the idea that I wanted to do something big. You know, um, David Graeber's debt, the first 5,000 years, had appeared two years earlier. And I wanted this to be meat, the first 2 million years, or the first 3 million years. But, I, but at the same time, you know, I, I felt daunted at that prospect, and I still didn't have a clear sense of how to organize the material or what the, what the, what the through thread was, which is something publishers, be it, even if, whether you're speaking to a trade publisher or, or a, a university publisher, they always want to know, you know, what's the red line through. Um, and I, so it took me a while longer to figure that out. And it, but finally, you know, I'd, I'd met uh, socially uh, in London um, where I was spending a lot of time for work. Uh, and that's something else we can come back to. A, a literary agent at, in early 2015. And we, we talked about different books that I might do that he might sell. And then I, a year later in March, 2016, he, he got in touch with me and said, okay, well, and we met again in London and said, I, I, I'd like to tell me, tell me about this idea you have for a book about the history of meat eating. And I, I outlined it for him and he said, okay, I'd like to sell this book. And the, the funny thing was just a month earlier, I had pretty much given up on doing the big version of this book. I'd sent off a proposal to the, to uh, the Bloomsbury series object lessons to do like the, 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 uh, the 30,000 word version, mm. the, 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 very, the, the pamphlet version. This, this, uh, this gentleman who became my, my first agent, Suresh uh, Ayuratnam, uh, said, I'm, I'm gonna send you, you know, a, sort of a, a skeleton for a, for, for a pitch. And you just, you, you know, you just work, up, work up a pitch that we could share with editors. And so, so I did that and I, I shared it with the, with the person at Bloomsbury who had edited my first book. And he shared it with someone in the, in the trade division at Bloomsbury. And they, they were interested and I, I met with them in, in June of 2016. And I, it was July of that year when I, when I sat down to, to start writing the book itself. And so the, my agent and I thought it would be fairly straightforward to sell. He had a lot of contacts in the, in sort of the, uh, the, the, the crossover and, and, uh, and, and uh, scholarly trade world, especially in the UK, imprints like, um, uh, like Alan Lane, Bodley Head, uh, things like that. And we, we had, we, 30 or more editors said, told, told us essentially, there's no market for a book about the intersection of race, capitalism, and the deep history of meat eating. You know, 
either we've we've tried Foolish. this and it didn't work or uh, we heard everything like like one like um one one person one editor said um essentially it's it, it, the, uh, there's nothing new here another said essentially this is this is too there's this is too original wouldn't this be better if you if you took a diaristic approach uh, to meet through the ages like like what was samuel peeps eating right and i said no that's exactly what i'm trying to get away from we had an editor at a at at a highly respected left leaning very political uh press the name of which shall shall uh shall we'll, we'll pass over in silence who said well i i don't understand why this book needs the first half and for those who haven't seen it, the book is organized into two parts, one of which treats the deep history from the Great Rift Valley three million years ago up to Iron Age uh, empires uh, circa 2000 years ago. And then the other, the other uh, treats the, the, the modern era. Why, why couldn't you just write the book about the modern era? And I said, mm, I'm pretty sure it needs the, the whole thing. Yeah. You know, and then we we had like otherwise public... I would have just written about the modern era. Yeah, That's what exactly. I thought it right. needed. So so, but so it took a, a surprisingly long time to sell this book, and I ended up selling it on my own to MIT. And MIT, uh, uh, they 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 went for it pretty quickly, and then it, it went out for for uh, outside peer review and. Uh, they they got three reports. I responded to the, the reports were, were by and large positive. I responded to all the all the all all the uh, the reviewers' concerns, and then and the the book went to the the book went to contract in October two thousand eighteen and appeared um, a little less than thirteen months later. And then three months later, after that, you know, we were in a a zoonotic pandemic, and the book has practically nothing to say about zoonotics. I was there's. Um, in principle, a a, an, a a Mandarin edition is coming out in mainland China next year, and so I've been working with the with the translator for um, for the, the for the publisher there, and I I wrote a new afterward, and so and the new after I wrote this last fall, so I I I, I went back and and looked at the book and said how much actually did I talk about the threat of of epidemics, and there and I do it's not that it, it doesn't appear at all. That um, in fact, at two different points in the book, I, I talk about this, but it's 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 not thematic, perhaps, in the way that I that I would that I would make it if if I were writing the book today. But in a way, that's a good thing because that's that I you know this uh, this did not the, the the current pandemic did not come out of nowhere. There were a lot of people talking mm -hmm. about the, the possibility of it for a long time, and I'm I'm glad I was able to focus on on themes that have not received the the same kind of uh coverage uh so that that uh that book took a long time both to bo both to sort of come together in my head and also to 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 reach the world and i'm i'm fairly satisfied with its with uh with its reception to date um but yeah I know I am very excited to get my hands on this book. Like truly, I'm going to dive into it this summer because this is the type of stuff that fascinates me endlessly. Um, I've been reducing my meat consumption since the seventh grade. And for my eighth grade presentation, I gave a presentation on sustainable, sustainable um, school lunches. So it's definitely something that's been on my mind for a long time and something that I personally proactively try to um, understand. But I was really fascinated, you know, that you were just saying that the goal of the book was to put the idea of what it means to be human and to consume animals like in broader terms than just arguments for health and environment. Right. 
Um, I know you still, obviously those arguments are something you lay out, but I want to hear, like, explain how that connected to the ties of meat eating diets and how the ties that meat eating diets had with economic and political issues of present and past. Well, oh, well, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's half the book, but, mm-hmm. but, it, but you got to give but, everyone a preview so that they want to right. read the book. <laughs> let me, let, let, let me, let me pause for just a, a moment to collect my, my thoughts and see if I no can problem. distill this down to, 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 to a couple pithy sound bites. Early on when I was formulating this book, I, this, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to show how, how I, a bit, how I arrived at the argument. And I, uh, I thought initially before I, I committed to, to the, the big version, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the really big version. I thought, well, I could do, I could do this as kind of a parable about the, uh, what, how much we don't know about the relationship between livestock intensification and nutrition transitions. In other words, be, uh, li- between, between the, the movement from, from pasturage to so-called landless, though it's really not landless, but, um, but uh, feedlot-based uh, confined anim- uh, livestock production. And the and the transition to a to a diet which is much higher in processed foods and, and animal products, and show that they, that that their their relationship is is more complex than we tend to imagine. And I could do this with a parable. But I, I had one case uh, uh, from from uh, the the livestock industry in in the deserts of central and northwestern Australia in the uh, over the course of the twentieth century, where where the indigenous uh, community was coercively enrolled in the livestock industry and you and uh, you can you can watch how their diets change right and you can see that it's that that li- that the intensification of the of the livestock industry drove the the transition in diet from um, uh, away from something that was much more plant-based towards something that was much more meat-based and much more processed and this in a community that we that iconically we we associate with hunting, we associate with meat eating. Though again, the stories, the story in fact is is rather different. Um, and so I so I was giving talks in Munich on this theme, and I gave a talk in in the 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 faculty seminar at the Rachel Carson Center in in March two thousand thirteen. And the response I got from my distinguished colleagues was, "Well, you've you've told a, a cute story, Dr. Burson." But the truth is, uh, it, when we look at the historical record, we we see that that uh, that meat consum- meat meat uh, has a lot of uh, income elasticity, right? As soon as people's yeah. in, as soon as um, wages go up, as soon as people get more um, more more flexible, more discretionary discretionary entitlements to uh, to to food, they sp- they tend to spend it on meat. And mo- most of the people in the seminar were were not were were historians of the 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 North Atlantic the the modern North Atlantic world and so their context was very different but they they had an interesting point and the other point they made was well you've um you've conflated two very different regimes of coercion right so i without with without uh getting too much into the weeds right um uh, if i were of a of a particular theoretical bent which i'm not uh, you might you might call these um, regime at, uh, after Foucault and Deleuze regime uh, disciplinary regimes and and control regimes 
right? So in one, so you, in other words, you've taken a case study from a from a disciplinary regime, from this very explicit form of coercion that was that was experienced by Indigenous Australians in the in in, uh, in in the station era, say between the 1920s and the 1960s, and you've applied it to this regime of to this uh, to this society of control, this this uh, situation of much more diffuse uh, coercion that's experienced by by um, by marginal migrant workers in urban settings today, and you can't do that, right? Yeah. Um, or you you you'd be better you'd be better off not doing that. It's a it's a poor control. And so I went away and thought about this uh, for for the next couple of years. And in the meantime, I started working on a project that was related to the to the book I ended up bringing out in the meantime, Computable Bodies. And I was I was um, I the that the project I was working on. I was part of the team that won this. Uh, so the Welcome Trust, which is kind of like has a role similar to the Gates Foundation, based in the UK. They they provide a, a broad support for for uh, research on, on human and animal health and well-being. Welcome Trust uh, initiated a new grant scheme called the Hub Award, where they, they provided two years of, of uh, fund. They provided essentially a million pounds for two years for, for large, for major collaborative research initiatives that were high risk in the sense that it wasn't sure what kind of outcomes they'd generate. And on mm -hmm. top of that, they, they said, we'll, we'll build you a, a studio space to suit bespoke studio oh. space on our premises in in one of our buildings in Houston at the center of London, and so I was part of the team that won the inaugural uh, Hub Award, and our project was called Hubbub. It was about the future of rest and busyness, or the the, the future of rest and its op opposites. I, I believe was the was the way way it was formulated by the the principal investigators, and I was responsible for the the empirical uh, field components. I was I was responsible for stuff that for for formulating a series of of uh, field experiments in, in essentially in in uh, what uh, in what you'd call experience sampling, but it was a bit more complex than that. This was the sort of the high high point of the the quantified self movement, and so the the grant maker had a lot of interest in self tracking, and I I had different ideas but we we gave it a try but essentially we we try we created uh, an experiment in in participatory sampling of of mood and alertness and we we ran a series of charrettes a series of, of prototyping experiments in in uh, in in this this field over over a, a two and a half year period uh, i was working with the design studio based in the hague called lust which is is uh, is no longer present um uh, my counterpart there, uh, Dimitri Nievenhuisen, uh, un unfortunately died very young uh, in 2017. But uh, in the course of this, you know, I was still thinking in the back of my mind about this 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 bigger book I wanted to write. And in in February 2015, my my partner and I one night watched the Simon Young movie, uh, The Stray Dogs. And there's a scene in the in the film where the protagonist, who is a, an anonymous homeless man in, living on the outskirts of Taipei, who works as a human billboard, holding up a, a sign advertising luxury condominiums in the center of Taipei, is is scarfing down chicken and rice on a lunch break, and it's the middle of the the monsoon, and he's sort of getting getting poured on, and his his kids meanwhile are 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 spending the day sort of trolling through this giant supermarket and picking up the free samples. And I, I just watched the protagonist of, of this of this film eating 
chicken. And I thought, this, this is the face of me. And there, there, there's, a, there's something wrong with the income elasticity move, um, argument. And I, I can get at it, right? That it's not simply the case that, that, uh, that we're, we have an innate disposition to eat more meat. And, and, and as soon as the, as soon as uh, barriers to that in the form of, of lack of, uh, lack of discretionary income fall away where our meat eating is going to shoot, shoot up. There's something more going on here and I can, I can uncover it, but to do that, I have to go way back. I have to show both that, 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 that we don't have this in a disposition that meat did not make us human and hunt, that hunting of large mobile prey is not, did not make us human. And that an affluent world is not of necessity a a, a meat eating world. Mm -hmm. So I so I felt like I had to to break the argument down into these into these two parts. One of which would 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 cover so the the uh, the paleontological and 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 archaeological material, and the other that would would uh, would 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 cover a much more historical and and contemporary material. And that's that's where the basic structure of the book came about. And then I to to force myself to get back to this project, I had arranged with a with a colleague, um, Stephanie Genge, uh, an old an old colleague from Berlin who was now a professor of history at uh, at the University of Cologne, to to convene a, a symposium on charismatic substances that may. So I had a few months now to write a paper on on the charisma of meat, right? And so so that was so that and that paper became the the kernel of the book. But then, as I said, it was another year after I presented that paper before I started writing the uh, the book itself. So these these things take time, um, and and all the and in, in the meantime, I should say that I was all all this time when I was moving house, you know, moving moving uh, to Munich to back to 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 the Hague, uh, back to Munich to Leipzig to the Hague, back to Berlin, commuting between Berlin and London. I had these these uh, these archives from the National Archives of Australia about um, uh, dietary stress in Indigenous Australians from the 1920s through the 1970s that I was mm -hmm. I was schlepping around with me and sort of periodically would would look at again, unable to make sense of them. And it took it took years before they the material. I was I was close enough to the material to understand what to do with it. It, that, but that's the book in a in a in a nutshell. That meat did not not only did not did meat not make us human, but we, uh, but an affluent world need not be a meat eating world. And the situation we're in today is one in which dispossessed humans and the animals they are they are forced to rely on uh, for food occupy coordinate role forms of subjection in a in a single system of economic violence. Yeah. And I think it speaks a lot to process too of how you were saying, you know, sometimes staring, <laughs> staring into the abyss and appearing to do nothing actually is allowing those thoughts and the material to sink deeper within you. And I know personally that I like before I write an essay or I write something like I have to let the ideas just like percolate in my brain while I'm walking or taking a shower. And then all of a sudden one day it kind of all falls into place. Well, I mean, you know, the the new book, the book, the, the book I have out now, just just this year, the, the Human Scaffold, is is even more an example of that. I mean, that one too. The I can that with that one, I can I can remember the exact moment when I knew I would I someday I will have to write a book on this theme, mm -hmm. and that was that was uh, October, maybe November, say October two thousand eleven, 
and I know I, I know where I was standing too. Um, and, and but but it was it was uh, just March of this year when the when the book finally came out. So close to close to ten years for that one, uh, and that and and yeah and even though it's it's a much shorter book than the meat question, and in some ways a, a misshapen book, a very off, a, a generically generically malformed book, a book that that I that that uh, that that I, I lay awake at night three years ago, wondering how will I sell this book that is were, uh, not quite three years ago, because it was, only, it was only once I started writing it in September of 2018 that I realized how, how awkward, how, how, how ill-suited to the generic conventions of I, either of the research essay or of anything else it was going to be, that I thought this, this book might not uh, be sellable. And then fortunately, since the, uh, Nils Gilman, the vice president of programs at the Berg Gruen Institute, where I was spending the year writing the book, said we're we're starting a series with the University of California Press, and we'd love to to ha uh, have you put your book in for the series. So, and, but again, it was a long process. You know, I they we sent it out for review. The first reviewer, uh, I don't know who it was. Um, uh, I'm glad I don't. But uh, from what I understand, a senior senior figure in environmental anthropology somewhere in the UC system said, this book belongs in a trade list. And I said, well, that's kind of how I wrote it. That's kind of what I thought the Bergeron wanted. And this book is, is, is kind of strange, you know, and the, the, fir the, the first half and the second half don't fit together so well. And, and so, we, you know, I, then I went through three rounds of one-on-one of, uh, of -on -one, uh, revision with, with Nils uh, and Craig Calhoun, his, his series co-editor. Uh, and then the and I submitted revisions, said two rounds of revisions. The, the book went out for review a second time. Two second round reviewers came back. And then a third round of, of external report, since this was University of California Press, with the editorial committee of the, of the UC Faculty Senate. And again, I don't know who the who the 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 report repertoire was for the committee. And I'm, I, I don't want to know. There would, you know. There's only a handful of people. At, it could have been, but but um, but that then finally, I, I got the sense. Okay, maybe this book has a future because that the repertoire for the 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 editorial committee, um, bless them, whoever they were, seemed uh, seemed to understand what I was doing and wrote what what I'm I'm certain will be the the most vindicating uh, external report I I ever receive on 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 anything. So so this so again. It, this was a, a story where, where both the, where I, I struggled just both to, to formulate the book and to, to sell it. The actual writing process, you know, was not, was, uh, was not quite so terrible, but, um, but, uh, but figuring out what, it, what I wanted to say and how to, how, how to make the pieces fit together and then, and then getting other people to see that, that maybe there was a point to doing this were, were, mm -hmm. were, uh, were, 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 were filled with, with long periods in which of, uh, of, uh, I don't know if staring into the abyss is too, is too histrionic, but, but, um, but of, of, of doubt and self-abnegation, mm -hmm. you know, and it, uh, but that's uh, that that seems characteristic of my of 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 my my process. I, think. So. I always have a dash of imposter syndrome thrown in there <laughs> for my personal well, process. I, yeah, I, 
yeah i would i would say in my case more more like a, a ladling but uh <laughs> i think though what you're bringing up you know that mm, is you know people bringing up is there really an audience for this is it going to sell you know i think that it's amazing that you're pushing these questions that are maybe on the edge, on the bubble of things that aren't really getting talked about, but that need to be talked about. And that maybe are in a different format, because I think every great shift and great, these great movements, you know, that we're talking about, whether it be social, political, environmental justice, all start with a change in the norm. And so I think personally, from me, (laughs) I think these are really um, special pieces of literature that you're putting out and that, you know, I hope they continue to find an even greater audience. And I'm, you know, very excited to see, you know, what you do next. That's, that's kind of you, Gabby, and, I, and, and gratifying to hear. Uh, but, you know, one of, the, one of the things, one of the things that I, that, that uh, often, uh, apart from the, 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 uh, the reports commissioned by, by presses, um, I, I solicit feedback from from uh, from colleagues, um, and one of the things that I hear over and over again is you you really care about getting things right, and that's that's become uncommon. And that's in some ways it makes it makes me uncomfortable to hear that, especially the the it's become uncommon part. But I do really care about getting it right, and the, as a result, these books can be can be a bit. Uh, technically challenging. I mean, I I, try, I did in this in this last one, you know, I, I did my best not not to let it be not to let the the technical detail overwhelm the story. The, the half the book could have been about uh, debates uh, debates about what what's an appropriate what's a, what's an appropriate way to to formulate um, s- strategy revision protocols in evolutionary game theory. If I if I'd wanted to, uh, and if I'd had another year to sort of wor- work it out in the in those terms, but I I, I decided I I I didn't want to to make it that way. You know, the first two chapters are a, a close reading. This is going to make the the book sound incredibly boring, so uh, I'll have to fix this after I say it. But the first two chapters, one way to look at the first two chapters is as a close reading of this, this obscure debate in evolutionary anthropology or in, in, in particular in, in what the, the philosopher of biology, Eva Yablanka, um, has called the California School uh, of, of Dual Inheritance Theory. Uh, one, uh, an obscure debate in, in, in theories about how to, how to formulate uh, culture as an evolutionary process. About the uh, about what kind of distribution, it's a pro- what kind of statistical distribution, it's a it is is good for modeling the the rates at which errors accumulate in 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 culture as it propagates from one generation to the next, and I and there had been by the time the the paper that that provided the irritant you know the initial animus for this book appeared in American Antiquity in two thousand four by a at the time, an, a, a, a not widely known anthropologist named Joseph Henrik. This was before The Secret of Our Success and The Weirdest People in the World. And it was 2011, as I said, when I, when I came across this paper and the responses by David Reed and the, the discourse that it had launched. And in the time between then and 2018, when I, when I wrote the book, 
a, a small literature, uh, a tidy literature had, had grown up around some of the technical questions raised by Henrik and Reed. And I, I thought, but there's so much more rasa to extract here. You know, there's, there's, there's so, and no, there had not been very much attention to the, to the empirical material. And in this case, it was, it was about what, what happened in Tasmania or what do we observe in the archeological record in Tasmania over the course of the first two thirds of the Holocene when the, after the, 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 uh, the, the, the uh, the, the world essentially got warmer and the, the bass sill flooded and Tasmania was cut off from the rest of Australia. So I, I, so I, I wanted to, get, to start by giving a, a fairly close contextual account of the, what, we, what understanding we have of the, of the, the archeological um, scene or the situation in Tasmania from the late Pleistocene, so going back to the earliest human occupations about 40,000 years ago. And then the book develops that, uh, develops the, uses those questions as a, as a, as a, as a springboard to, to, to talk about the implications for how we think about uh, responses to our own carbon situation. You know, in other words, if, if, um, if so much of, uh, if it's not the case, as, as certain actors in this debate from 10 years ago um, postulated that, that uh, what we observe in Tasmania is, is a kind of maladaptive cultural devolution, right? If in fact there was some, some adaptive process unfolding, some pro-adaptive process unfolding in Tasmania, but it's archeologically invisible because it didn't involve a lot of material precipitates, a lot of stuff, what does that say about our own strategies for responding to 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 the very to the the uh, climate situation we're in now? The, the one that the Tasmanians faced was the product of 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 uh, what what Earth system scientists would call an an extrinsic forcing, or what economists would call an exogenous shock. Right? Ours is much more endogenous. Right? It's it's very much mm -hmm. of our own own making yeah and so and, and our our responses thus far have been very much stuff driven right well we yeah. if we could put together a a, a portmanteau a toolkit of, of stuff with a smaller footprint a smaller carbon footprint smaller mm -hmm. energy footprint this that you know that that left that put less plastic waste in the oceans and so on then we'd be okay but but actually the the, the forms of of uh of niche refashioning that 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 are going to be required of us are are significantly deeper than that, and and uh, and and they're not. It's not stuff that we can. It's not not the sort of thing where where we can let stuff where we can let uh, material intermediaries do do the work for us. And so that that's that that's uh, the the argument of the book, and that's that's how the two parts fit together. But it did. Mm -hmm. But putting it that concisely took. You, as I said, the better, the better part of ten years. And when I say it now, it doesn't seem all that all that complicated. Which, but I, but I'm I'm a slow learner, you know. So. No, I think it's really interesting how you're comparing, you know, the record of human presence in Australia, you know, with with the near absence of this stuff that we now put our possessions are so intrinsically just like a part of us now in today's society and we just have these um we have these attachments to these objects 
but it was, that's not like our past wasn't based on attachments to objects. And I also thought something that you brought up that was, I found, found really interesting is, you know, so much of the archeological record focuses on stuff, yet stuff wasn't what mostly compiled their lives. If you just want to well, I don't want to, I, I don't want to, um, to be derogatory about stuff. I mean, there, there are reasons that we form attachments to mm -hmm. material things. And I, 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 I try to to draw that out a bit in the in the book. Perhaps I, I do a poor job of it, but I, it's not that I'm it's not that I'm anti stuff. It's that it's it's that uh, it, I, in fact I, I have kind of a, a a very skeptical view of the the uh, the, the faddish uh, minimalism and and decluttering that that that's become uh, that's um, that's been rampant over the past few years. But but I. But I, I just wanted to offer a more capacious space of options, as it were, and and that's not possible until you you begin to see uh, the that that the this, this the role that stuff has played in 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 uh, in the human past is is uh, is is biased in the archaeological record because stuff is what fossilizes you know mm -hmm. whereas or it's what it's what it, it's what is is salient it's what it's what pops out at us in the archaeological record that's not to say you can't get at other stuff but at, at, at other kinds of things but it's it's uh it's trickier it takes longer it's 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 uh it requires it's uh, it's riskier it can it requires more speculation it requires as well a, a different kind of socialization you have to be operating in a in a disciplinary surround that that uh, that encourages um, a, a certain kind of cantilevered argument, you know. Um, but um, and I and I I do try to 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 be cautious in 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 my speculation. But I think I think it's it's essential that we that uh, that we acknowledge the that 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 uh, that, that we. Um, uh, we we not misrep misrepresent the record in in an effort not to in, in to in an effort to avoid speculation. Yeah, there were um, I know there there were other things you wanted to ask me about the book, in particular one yeah. one episode from the end of chapter two, which uh, which has become kind of a a you know the the uh, the passage you you uh, you read out to me before before we mm -hmm. started is not that's that's something that. Uh, that's that's a comment I made uh, to to one of our um, to one of my uh, counterparts at, at the the Bergruen Institute, which yeah. again generously funded this book, and it, it doesn't appear in the book. And that's that's one of the things I've been thinking about lately. Is that you know so just just for context, very briefly for listeners, toward the end of the the first part of the the first third of the book, there's a there's a there's a passage where I talk about breath hold diving, um, apnea diving. And its its role in the productive life, not just of Tasmanians as as uh, mm -hmm. early European uh, adventurists, Aravists, um, intruders, uh, observed them circa 1800, but as it's but as it's been observed more recently among women in uh, Jeju Island, Korea, and along both coasts of Japan, the uh, the so-called Henyo and and Amasan. Um, also very common among Chumash in uh, our area. Yeah, the, among the Chumash of, of the California of the California coast. And so essentially, this is a a foraging strategy wherein it tends um, cross culturally it tends largely to be women 
who uh, who died for for Abalone um, and and uh, and and uh, other other mollusks and crustaceans, um, and so some sometimes uh, sometimes unassisted, sometimes just free diving in five to ten meters of water. Other times um, diving with with weights, uh, and this is a strategy that you know it's 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 attested for Tasmania, circa eighteen hundred, and this has become a point of contention because you, you don't see Tasmanians eating fin fish or or fishing with hooks, and so the presence of free diving has been postulated as a as a demonstration that that Tasmanians had lost the capacity to sustain a technically richer culture. And I, I thought about this, and it, again, it came it was, came about in a moment of contingency. It was because for one reason and another, I was uh, forced to take a day off from writing. And it was it, after writing the, the section that came just before it. And I thought, hey, wait a minute. Uh, I bet I could find out more about this. Uh, I bet there are there are ethnographic uh, comparative cases. And, and it turned, because I, because the the Amasan, the uh, the the women free divers of Japan, had 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 been in the news recently. There was a new documentary film. Uh, there, the uh, Michelle Iardo and colleagues had just published in Current Biology a study of the physiological adaptations of the the of uh, of um, free divers in Eastern Indonesia. And so I thought, well, maybe maybe this is not as isolated a case as the 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 authors I've been discussing have represented it, you know, and so I so I I wrote what became kind of a pivotal set piece in the book the the a few days later, um, and it it didn't take more than a, an hour to find the the relevant sources because it it turned out the U.S. Office of Naval Research had uh, had uh, commissioned research on the 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 uh, physiological characteristics. Of free divers in Korea and Japan, and and held a symposium on mm. on this theme in 1965. So there was a lot of research, and it was collected in in just a, a handful of places. And I, I began to to think about how skillful this activity is. You know that it's no less skillful than the than the kind of operatory chains we associate with the manufacture of missile weapons or or mm -hmm. or, or or anything else that we, that you might expect to find in a in an immediate return forager's toolkit, but I, what I did not have in mind, you know, when I was writing about this, was was the the broader context in which we now, now this year, it's it's obvious to, or it seems clear that we have to think about breathing as a as a skill, and in particular, right, the, when you're in California at the moment, and and uh, I'm sure the, the respiratory hazards of of mm -hmm. of a 12 year 12 month uh, fire season are becoming yes. apparent. We've all uh, seen over the past year and a half uh, the respiratory hazards of of uh, of communicable diseases, or rather, um, virus-borne diseases, because so-called uh, no, so non-communicable diseases are also socially communicable, um, and the respiratory hazards of of being a person of color, right? So mm -hmm. some of us, um, some of us are are, are entirely you know can breathe at will. And other others among us have to ask permission, or or may, maybe not explicitly ask permission, but others of us sort of breathe on on dispensation, right? And this is something we don't talk about. But I I've begun to feel that it's 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 layered into this this uh, this scholarly conversation about what 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 are the what what are the archaeological 
diacritics of skill, right? Right, because if breathing is not as skillful as 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 uh, as as uh, debitage, as fi as fine rework of a of of uh, of, of flint and silkcrete, then 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 maybe that's that's not because that maybe that's that reflects in part um, the fact that that uh, that the that uh, breathing is not something that 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 has been that that has ever seemed adversarial to people in the scholarly community, right? So I I, I this you know I I feel I have to I I'm mindful of my own positionality as here mm -hmm. as a as a as a white man and I there's I there's there's a I, I feel it's I feel it's important for us to 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 project ourselves into the lives of socially distant others, you know, to 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 do it poorly with with the right intent, and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, unpopular view uh, though that may be at the moment. But uh, but I'm I'm mindful of uh, of of how limited is my own my, my own capacity to imagine just how just how skillful breathing and holding one's breath um, yeah. might be. But uh, but this is something that I've that I've been thinking about more over the over the past year, uh, and something that that Elizabeth Chin, the the editor in chief of the American Anthropologist, and I discussed in a in a podcast last week, which should be out soon. But um, but yeah, uh, I don't know how much more time you have. I I'd, I'd be glad to keep going a bit. What what, what I have plenty of time. Oh okay, great. Um, I'm interested in um. I'm going to let you choose which book mm. you want to, because mm -hmm. we've kind of touched on a lot. I'm curious what the main takeaways you hope readers are taking from any of your books. And if you have one in specifically in mind. Well, I I'll, I'll focus on the new one. All right. Uh, because it's the human it's scaffold. Most, it's most salient. Uh, so what, what do I hope readers take away? Oh, this is the it's such a it's it's such a natural question and and yet it's uh again i let, i'll i'll pause just for a moment to to collect my thoughts you know what i okay what i would um or even perhaps questions yeah you want one thing to... one okay i one thing i would like readers to to um to come away from this this book with is a is is a this and again this is something that's only now becoming clear to me, um, but one of the one of the abiding themes of this book, or I shouldn't say themes because I did such a poor job of thematizing, but one of the one of the subtexts is the distinction between learning and education, right? And I I don't you know this is this is um this may seem sort of completely skewed to the, the relationship between, uh, say, uh, material-driven strategies of, of adaptation and what I call in the book inactive strategies or, or strategies that, 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 are, that are driven more by, 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 how, by our, their, their, uh, their recurring inaction in, 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 uh, in social situations. Um, but, and and that, that, is a, that is a key theme of the book, right? That, uh, that, that even material strategies are ultimately inactive in the sense that if I if I simply gave you a toolkit, if I left it knolled out on the floor, right, and you had no context, yes, 
uh, it's popular, it's, it's in the design professions to invoke J.J. Gibson and, and Gibson's concept of affordances and say, well, you know, that, 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 uh, that, that hammerstone would so, sort of jumps out at me, sort of having, there's a particular way it wants to be held, right? Mm -hmm. And once, you've held, once you hold it, you see there's a particular, a particular kind of motion that it wants to, wants to have made with it. And that may be true to a certain degree, but I don't. I don't feel like affordances exist in a vacuum that way. And and it's my contention that if I simply nulled out a toolkit on the floor, and you had no context for it, you would not be able to to uh, to use it to to keep yourself uh, fed and, and fed, clothed, and sheltered. You know that that ultimately all strategies are require this um, this. Uh, this ongoing dyadic inaction, this, this, this ongoing back and forth in the same way that, that say language does, right? So language, the, the material precipitates of language, the palpable traces of which, of, of which speech is formed, um, be those traces vocal or manual or facial gestural or, or glyphic today are, are relatively uh, ephemeral but language, but language itself, language, the, the faculty, the process endures, right? Uh, and you, and it's, if, if you say this, it, you, you, you might hear, well, but that, that makes it seem like it's, it's so ten, like uh, technology or the, the culture, say, um, technical culture, um, adaptive culture is so tenuous, right? If there's a break in the discourse chain, a break in that dyadic, it, uh, chain of, of inaction, uh, it, it, it all goes away. But that's always been the case. That's the case even for technologies that seem anchored in the in their material precipitates. Even, even that you know, and uh, and the so the both the both the uh, the I'm, I don't I don't favor the the concept of uh, of, the, of transmission as a, as applied to to culture, but say the the reproduction mm -hmm. the of of culture. Um, is it, it depends way more on its on this the, this uh, this inactive component than than it does on on the material precipitates. Even when the material precipitates play a central role in mediating the activity of the technology, that's that is the the uh, the thing that that I, I hope will jump out mm -hmm. at most readers. But there's a second thing, as I've said, since I've I've, I've unpacked this recursively. Um, uh, a, a characteristic of, of, of my way of speaking that, that goes back many years and that I've, I've, I've struggled in vain to, to stamp out. There's a second thing, which is the distinction between learning and education. So learning is a more or less, is in, in its broadest formulation, is a, is a process of, of, uh, of, of encoding experience um, in the, in, in the, uh, in, in the the in in the body or in the in the organismic form that is more or less universal to living things. Education is a form of socialization, distinctive to um, a certain a certain kind of society that we associate with with late modernity, right? Mm -hmm. And yet we we tend to think of um, learning as the thing that happens in education, or ed education as the setting for learning. And that's that's something I I feel like like this. This confusion between education and learning is at, goes to the heart of the confusion that I'm unpacking in the first two or three chapters of the book. Um, uh, that 
between uh, between between technology and and uh, and skill, as it were, or or and and that uh, and it's something that was though 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 it comes up in the book at several points, and I you know I I, I dutifully allude to the 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 uh, relatively uh, small literature on on learning learning in children in foraging societies. I I did not do very well at thematizing it, and that's becoming apparent to me now as I talk about the book. And I have I, I find myself having the same conversation lately with people from a, a range of backgrounds, and it it comes down to this question of could you could you reimagine education in a way that would be more aligned with with uh, with 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 learning. Right, mm -hmm. not, 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 and because education, I feel, has become this, this, uh, an, this audit-driven exercise in incremental skills transfer, and, and, and that, and perhaps this is a fitting way to, it's fitting thing to come back to toward the end, since we started with, with, uh, with education and with, mm -hmm. with you my, uh, my own uh, social, uh, uh, my own professional genealogy, yours in prospect, but, but um, I the. Conversation I keep having with with a variety of people is, could you imagine creating something like Black Mountain College today, and what would it look like if you did? Is it even possible to imagine it? And for uh, for, for those who are unfamiliar, Black Mountain College was was a was a, a short lived uh, liberal arts school in the in uh, the the Smoky Mountains in uh, um, North Carolina near near Asheville. Um, it was founded in 1933, uh, uh, early on in, in the, the Great Depression in the United States, and ran until 1957. And, but, but it was extraordinarily influential. I mean, if you look at who taught there, Josef and Annie Albers, refugees mm -hmm. from, from Germany who, uh, and who had, who had uh, been very prominent at the Bauhaus, um, led the design and, and arts faculty. Um, and uh, John Cage and Merce Cunningham, Cy Twombly, right? Every everyone, and and it wasn't it wasn't just an art school, but um, Ruth Asawa, who's finally getting recognition, was both a student there and then later taught there. Uh, it, and it only ran, you know, it ran for less than less than twenty five years. It only ran for say one one generation, to put it in in anthropological terms. And yet it it's become kind of a an, an emblem of what, of what uh, participatory education could look like, at least at the, at the tertiary level. And when I see, as I, as I saw in the, the Financial Times just before we signed on, the, uh, the demonstration of, uh, that, that Facebook gave for journalists of, of its first foray into, into the, the, the much ballyhooed metaverse, right? With its, its virtual office, with, uh, which, which looks like, you know, Second Life, circa 1997, except except everyone's everyone's sitting at the except except the avatars are even more more infantilized, right? They've got the outsized heads, right, and um, and and everyone's sitting at these at, at these polished uh, um, birch birch veneer tables that are sort of floating in the air. And you think, my God, we we might as well get it over with if this is if this is the future. Right then, then maybe then then maybe we should burn, you know. I yeah, I, I think I, about that I mean, sometimes myself. 
but and yet the same thing the same thing is happening the same thing is happening in 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 universities if anything the us for once is sort of not on the leading or is, is not on the leading edge of of uh, uh, of the 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 uh, in, intrusion or 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 engulfment of, of the university by audit culture but certainly in europe it's uh, and in other parts of the world, Europe, the UK, Australia. It's much more. It's mu much more advanced, right? Where 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 everything is driven by what in the UK is called this, you know, research excellence framework, which is where your your value as a as as a, as an investigator is determined by the cardinality of your CV, right? That which which uh, getting back to 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 uh, perverse incentives. Right, encourages people to turn out a lot of crummy conference papers rather than spend ten years working on a on a on a generically chimerical book. That I mean, I'm not, I don't. I, I, it sounds as if I'm, you know, I'm 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 playing myself up as as engaged in this heroic struggle against uh, against um, audit culture. But and that's that's not how I want to um, portray myself because I I I've realized I've come to accept now. That I'm in my mid forties. That I'm I'm characteristically unable to be uh, other than I am. That I'm I'm just mm -hmm. I, that I'm 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 just awkward, and that that I that that in some ways that's in in the long run that that may that may work to my advantage, uh, or or it's something that I can that I can uh, uh, feel relieved about. But I so one other thing to get way back to your question that from 10 15 minutes ago that i would like people to take away from this book is for the human scaffold the new one what what we think what goes on when we the the kinds of knowledge transfer or skills transfer that we associate with education that's not at the heart of what it means to 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 learn something to learn to be skillful right mm -hmm. and and in fact the the, uh, there's a certain um, gerontocratic bias to the, the models of skills transfer that have become dominant in the literature on cultural evolution, right? They, they focused a lot of attention on what happens, on, on, on how many skilled models for, do you need in order to ensure the, the faithful transmission of a, of a, of a, of a strategy. From one generation to the next, and not at all on the the motor experimentation that you that people undergo when they're mm -hmm. when they're learning to be skillful. And this is true equally of something like um, like writing. Uh, I I would say for me, certainly for me, it's very much a a physical activity, uh, and it's and it's it's true equally of of um, the kinds of work that you do in in uh, in osteopathology, right? Which mm -hmm. which you I understand you've spent quite a bit of time at university uh, doing, right? You know, I for five years I was embedded in a getting getting back to socialization. You know, this was long after I finished my PhD, but for five years between 2013 and the end of 2017. I was embedded in a functional brain imaging group at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences, and this was this was really wonderful. I mean, I I uh, I I, I didn't didn't supervise any PhD students. In fact, instead, I was sort of the person that the, that that uh, that they could come to with 
with uh, with concerns that they wouldn't mm. approach a supervisor with, even though their, their supervisor, my friend Daniel Margulius, was a wonderful supervisor. And if anyone listening is is considering applying for a role in his in his newly formed group in Paris, I I strongly encourage you to. Um, but but one of the early on in in my time there, you know, when I arrived, one of the things that Daniel's group was was working on was was uh, they they had all this this resting state functional brain imaging data, all these acquisitions, uh, uh, a lot of a lot of brains, a lot of experienced. <laughs> people very experienced at lying at holding still in the magnet board for 45 minutes so that they could get a good long acquisition and they wanted to they were trying to um uh figure out like what how the how patterns of co-activation related to certain uh, certain cytoarchitectonic features you know what you see when you actually dissect the brain and they had someone they 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 had a, a phd student who by hand was going through the, the acquisitions, the images after they'd been pipelined, after they'd, they'd been cleaned up and, so, and assigning degrees of, of correlation between different parts of it, between distant parts of the, of the, the cortex based mm -hmm. on, on, on their, their levels of co-activation of blood oxygen dependent signal. Um, on, in, in a resting state when, when there's no task. And I said, well, why, why do you have to have Esther doing this by hand? Couldn't you just take the, you know, the, the, the Laplace and couldn't you just take the second derivative of the, of the, uh, of, of the gradient because you, because you have the numerical data for the blood mm -hmm. oxygenation signal, right? And just, and just see where the inflection points are. And then you can, they said, no, 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 no it would never work. We have to do it by hand. Yes, maybe we could after that, we could train a, a classifier. We could train a a a uh, um, uh, what was the sexy thing at the time? A a, uh, um, a a support vector machine. Today it would be you know a recurrent neural network. Yeah. After that, we could train a support vector machine, but it has to be from labeled training data. It has to be a person who's doing mm -hmm. it. And that and that's that's true of of I, I that has stuck with me, and it's not something that really surprised me since my training was in sociology of science, but, it, mm -hmm. but it's true of so many things. Skill is all kinds of skills, including very fine skills, are, are things that we have to work out for ourselves motorically. They're not some, 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 something that can be imparted in, a, in, in an educational setting as we, mm -hmm. as we think of it today. So yes. that's, that's something else that I hope readers will take away from the book. Awesome. I think that was a great note to end on. And I'm just so appreciative of your time and coming on here. I'm really impressed by your publications. And I'm horribly sad that I, before this episode, didn't get a chance to fully like read a lot of them. But oh. I truly, the meat question, I am getting my hands on that. And I'm reading it at the beach this summer because, you know, UCSD doesn't start for a whole other month. So I'm, I have a little bit more time left to enjoy and soak up some vitamin D. <laughs> Gabby, it has been such a pleasure, and you've you've been so kind to allow me to to rant at length. It seems to be the thing, the thing I do best, and uh, I me as well. <laughs> but uh, and and I wish you every every luck and 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 happiness in your in your final year at, at university and uh, in your in your sure to be a a a, a successful career as a PhD student. Thank you.